As we continue our study in the life and ministry on earth of Jesus, we've come to Luke chapter 12. And it starts off by saying, under these circumstances. Well, the circumstances is what we left off with last week in the sense that Jesus had been answering questions and discussing things with the Pharisees, and they didn't like what he was doing, and they didn't like his answers. And so they became very hostile towards him and started plotting against him. So in that set of circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another. That's real life. We, uh, we have this idea sometimes that, that Jesus was only real popular when he fed the thousands and he did, but Jesus' ministry is becoming more and more popular. That doesn't mean more and more people are getting what he's saying or doing what he's saying. It's just that he's becoming more popular and there are thousands of people. And all you have to do is go out in a crowd and see that most people don't pay attention to other people. And so it's easy for them to step on each other and uh, just get in each other's way. And so in that situation, he that being Jesus began saying to the disciples, first of all, so he's giving them some priorities in teaching here. And he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now he doesn't leave to doubt what the the leaven is. The leaven is that type of thing that's all that's needed is just a little smidge and it will impact and affect the entire uh, food uh, distribution. So it only takes a little leaven to raise bread. So Jesus is saying, beware, be cautious about the leaven of the Pharisees. And again, he doesn't say, well, I wonder what that is. He tells them it's hypocrisy. That's the leaven. Hypocrisy is play acting. It's pretending to be something you're not. And um, unfortunately, many, if not all, religious people can be accused in some sort, in some way of being a hypocrite. For instance, we all say that we're saved by grace and it's not a matter of works and all that. And yet there will creep up, even in my life, a sense of, well, somebody will do or have done something that I'll think, well, a believer wouldn't do that. Well, who am I to judge another believer? I'm being hypocritical because I'm saying, what I've done, God's grace is covered. And if I don't like something you've done, well, maybe you're less. And so it's very easy for us to fall. So Jesus is saying, just because you're his follower doesn't mean you're automatically uh, immune from being a hypocrite. And non-church people, non-religious people love to tell us, we church people, that we're hypocrites. And I have two responses to that. Yes, we are, and that's why we go to church, which is a hospital, which helps us to get over it. The second is, quite frankly, they are too. Now, how is it that they are? Well, many people who are uh, atheists believe there's no God, and yet they definitely and desperately want their life to have meaning and impact. Well, if there is no God and we just got here by accident, then there is no meaning and there is no purpose. So why are you so worried about it? So we all have a tendency to be a little hypocritical. So even in our judgment of hypocrites, we tend to be hypocrites. 
And so Jesus is telling us, beware of that. And so it's something that we as believers should always stand on guard. Now he's going to follow up with that with something I just wish he hadn't said. He says, but there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. And according to whatever was said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. So everything that you think you did in secret and everything you thought you said in secret, it's going to be known. I personally don't like that, but he's God. He gets to say and, and teach what's the facts. And so as a, um, a movie uh, character once said, well, that's all I'm going to say about that. I'm going to apply here because it just causes me too much pain. Verse 4, and I suspect it does you as well. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. The, fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So Jesus says, don't be afraid. We have all this fear about different things in all life circumstances and people, and we have this tendency to be afraid. And Jesus said, what's the ultimate thing that the person you're afraid of can do? He can take your life. Well, Jesus has come to give us life eternal. So what? So he's saying, don't be afraid. But then he uses a different word. He says, but fear someone else. He says, fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Now, I want to comment two things. The only person who has the authority to cast someone into hell is God. So Jesus is saying, fear God. Now, most of us, when we think of the idea of fear, we think about fear and trembling and, and whatever. If that's what gets you to understand who God is, okay. But the fear here is much more take him seriously, understand who he is. And if he is who he is, God, then we need to take what he says and does with seriousness. And so if it means you're thinking, well, I don't know about fearing God because God loves me. Yeah, he loves you. And he's also not only holy, he is holy, holy, holy. And we ain't. The second thing I want to tell you is that Jesus just here said, hell's real. He didn't say, well, after it, he'll cast you off and you'll be an outer dog. He'll, he says, he's able to put you into hell. So you may not believe in hell, but Jesus knows it's there. So I'm going to take him at his word, not yours. So I would rather be afraid of somebody else, and take God seriously to fear him. But Jesus is going to say, fear God, but there is a counter to it. And are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. And I'm saying, it takes five sparrows, and you can buy them for two pennies, two cents. And he didn't say, well, God takes seriously all five sparrows. He says, 
one of the sparrows, which you can't even buy with money because he's so cheap. God knows about that sparrow. He is not, that one is not forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Now, I know some of us are making it easier for God to keep count because we keep losing ours, but he still knows even when we brush our hair and they start falling out, he still knows how many is there, which means he didn't check us last week to see how we're doing. It's daily, hourly, minute by minute. He knows who we are. Do not fear you are more valuable than many sparrows. You see, Jesus is saying, yeah, take God seriously. Understand that he has the authority to cast you into hell. But because if you are a believer in Christ, you are more valuable than many, many sparrows. Now, again, I wish you to use a different analogy. Because I think I'm still worth more than thousands of sparrows. But he's drawing a point that if God so notices a sparrow, you are more valuable to him than many sparrows. Never did he send his son to die for a sparrow. But he did so for you and me. Verse 8. And I say to you, so he's Jesus is teaching a number of different things. Everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him before the angels of God. But he who de denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it, is, it will not be forgiven him. So Jesus is saying, when you become a believer, there are no secret believers. If you deny him, then he's going to deny you. Well, then you instantly think of, well, what about Peter? Peter not only denied him, he denied him three times. Because Jesus had already told Peter that would happen. And I think that was part of the reason why Peter was so valiant at the arrest, and why he took out his sword and struck one of the uh, men in attendance. Because I think he was trying to deny denying. But then when it came during Jesus' trials that he followed him, that even a slave girl, he could not say, I'm with Jesus. But the difference is, Peter did not have the Holy Spirit then. After the resurrection, he did. And Peter considered it joy to suffer for the name of Jesus. You and I, if we are believers, have the Holy Spirit. So a denial of him would then kind of impact, maybe we do not have the Holy Spirit. So, I think we should take this warning very seriously. How important is our faith in him? And he says, even if it comes at a time when you say something against the Son of Man, he says, I'm going to forgive you. 
But when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. And that's why the Pharisees are not being forgiven, because they did, in fact, blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Then he's going to come upon a different topic in kind of the same vein. In verse 11, he says, When they bring you before the synagogue and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. Now, Jesus is saying there's one thing when somebody says, are you my disciple? And you say yes or no. Now it's been ratcheted up and you've been brought before the religious authorities. Now for us, we think, oh, well, so what? For them, it was very significant because if you were cast out of the synagogue, it was a true excommunication. It was no longer you just weren't allowed to go to synagogue. You couldn't buy, sell, or do other things because you were cast out of the community. So it was a serious situation. So Jesus says, when that happens, and it will, because his disciples, after the resurrection and ascension, went to the authorities on a number of times. He says, don't plan out your defense beforehand. Now, that's not this denying what Peter will later write in his letters, to always be ready to give a defense for the faith that is in you. That defense is when you are witnessing, why would you become a follower of Jesus? You're having it. It's where we get the term apologetics. It's you are discussing why I believe the way I do. This isn't why I believe the way I do. I believe the way I do, and I have been accused of it. So Jesus, don't worry. Don't plan out a defense. The Holy Spirit is going to tell you exactly what to say and when to say it. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to buy what the Holy Spirit says and you'll be released. You may be released and you may be like Stephen who gets stoned to death. Or you may be like Peter who gets crucified upside down. Or you may be like Paul who's believed to have been beheaded. Or you may be like any thousands of other believers who were crucified, burned at the stake and whatever, all for the name of Jesus. But your defense will be made by the Holy Spirit. And while Jesus is making these statements, we get somebody who wants to change the subject. If you've ever taught classes or you've done things, you'll find people who are always wanting to change the subject. You're trying to drive home certain points. Jesus is saying, beware of the, the leaven of the Pharisees. Uh, make sure you understand that even your thoughts are known. And if you deny me, I'll deny you. And all of this. And so here comes in verse 13, a change of subject. Some in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. So here's this guy. Jesus is teaching spiritual things. Jesus is trying to teach us 
how to relate to God and how to live a better life, if you will. And here's this guy who inter interrupts and he's so much like people who pray to God. Notice he didn't say, hey, Jesus, would you hear my case? This is why my brother should divide the inheritance with me. It's no, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. When we go to Jesus, we tell him, God, I want you to do A, B, C, D, and E. Oh, and uh, in your name, amen. We love to tell God what to do. Rather than saying, God, this is my case. As David, in many of the Psalms, will plead his case before God, as God being the judge and saying, God, you render the decision. This person changes the subject, demands that Jesus determine the outcome according to the way he wants it to be. But he said, being Jesus, said to him, man, who appointed me judge or arbitrator over you? Now, this reminds me of two things. When Moses attempted to be the judge of the entire nation of Israel as they were leaving, his brother-in-law, I mean, I'm sorry, his father-in-law gave him some great advice. He said, there's too many problems. There's too many. So why don't you appoint some people who are good, worthy men to render judgment on these small matters and on the important things. In essence, in our situation, you become the Supreme Court. If it's a really hard matter or somebody wants to appeal the decision or whatever, then you hear that, but let all the other judges. And Jesus, in essence, saying, I got more important business. So who, who made me judge in this situation? Go deal with the judge in this situation, not me. But I'll tell you who appointed Jesus judge, God. And he will judge us at the end, if you will, in the ultimate supreme court. So then he takes that opportunity of the change of topic to teach as well. Then he said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. So Jesus says, here's this guy's come, and we're going to assume that he was probably fairly well off because he doesn't say that the guy's poor. He says, even when you have enough and you have a lot of possessions, what you own does not define you. Now, what you own tries to define you. All you have to be is a new dad who wants to put a swing set up for his children and to see all the complicated directions of the swing set. And then at the end, it tells you you're supposed to oil it every so often. You're supposed to maintain it every so often. And you just go, I just want the kids to have fun. I don't want to work. And so we have these things. And all of a sudden, the more we seem to possess, the more it seems to possess us. The people who seem to want to hold on to what they have are those who have more. And so Jesus is saying, beware. So notice, just as Jesus has said, beware of hypocrisy, he says, beware of every form of greed. Because there's lots of forms of greed. It's not just money. It can be fame. It can be power. It can be um, 
popularity, whatever the situation is, we can never find enough. And if you will, that's one of the, I guess, great questions among a number of why I'll never be exceptionally wealthy is because when I look at these great men and women of wealth, I wonder, why you keep working? Why, you, why don't you just enjoy what you got? Why don't you take what you got and then do good things or do whatever? Why not? But I know it's because some people, it's not the possession, it's the pursuit of the per- possession. And so they are trying to acquire it. And he's saying, your life does not consist of what you own. No one will judge you at the end, whether you owned Bentleys and Mercedes and Maseratis, as opposed to 67 BWs. It's not definitive. And to drive home this point that you're not defined by your possessions, even if it's a lot, which is going to kind of shake them up because they think the more you have, the more God blesses you. And the less you have must mean God is opposed to you. So then he's going to tell them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Now notice, he doesn't ask the question, Do I have enough? He says, I don't have enough space to store what I have. He could have said, Since I have no space, maybe I should give what I have extra to others, but no, he's going to hold on to it. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there will store all my grain and my goods. Now notice you keep hearing my goods, my grain, my stuff. He's thinking his possessions define him. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now this rich young fool, as he'll be later talked about, has the same problem many younger people and older people do. We all decide that we're going to pursue things before we take a look at our eternal souls. So we say, well, when I get through school, I'll turn to God. And when I get a job, I'll turn to God. And when I get a promotion, I'll think about God. And when I'm there in retirement, I'll think about God. And well, you know, I've always wanted to take that cruise. So after the cruise, I will think about God. And there's always some other reason to think about rather than your soul. And so when you do that, so he's saying, take your ease, kick back. You have lots of stuff. You can enjoy it. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, but God said to him, this very night, your soul will be required of you. All of his plans 
to enjoy all of his stuff ended that night. He said, Saul, take it easy. God said, no, no, but Saul is demanded night. And then God asks him a question as he takes him out. And now, who will own what you have prepared? Question is, okay, you decided to trade the temporary instead of the eternal. So who's going to maintain the temporary? As I frequently say, I have never seen in all the funeral possessions that I have been a part of or observed driving on the highway that I ever see a U-Haul trailer behind the hearse. You never take it with you. One of the reasons I know is because I do probate work. And oftentimes the heirs fight over what you said is how they're supposed to be divided up. And so they spend most of it on the lawyers arguing over who ought to get it. But regardless of who wins or loses, the person in the ground didn't take it with them. And this has been a common thought throughout human experience. Take the Egyptians, the rulers, the pharaohs thought, okay, not only do I believe in an afterlife, and so they mummified them and put their bodies in whatever. What did they do? They put in boats, and they put in servants, and they put in gold, and all kinds of things to make their life valuable in the afterlife. But guess what? When they raided those tombs, the boats and the servants and the gold and the jewels were still there. Even in their belief, it still didn't get gone from them. So is the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. The end of this parable, Jesus, in essence, asks us a question. Are you more generous with your stuff for you than you are generous towards God? And then he goes on in verse 22, and he says, And he said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as of what you will eat, nor for your body as of what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow, nor reap, nor have storerooms, nor barns. And yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Well, God's already answered that. You are more valuable. You are more valuable than than many sparrows, and yet God knows every moving of the sparrow. So you are more valuable. So if God feeds them, you don't need to worry. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Now, there was a song that I didn't like said, don't worry, be happy. I just didn't like the tune. And I've read this passage, not just in, in 
sermons, but in other Bible studies. And I go, yeah, praise God, don't worry. And it's easy for me to tell you not to worry about what you're worrying about until it's something that I worry about. And yet, what God, Jesus says is, don't worry because you won't change it by worrying. You can lie on your bed uh, awake worrying, and it either will or won't happen. But yet we continue to lay in our bed worrying about it. So I have two pieces of advice that I need to give myself and to you. So I'm pointing one finger, three fingers are being pointed back. Number one, if there's something that you can do about it, do it. If there's nothing you can do about it, pray. Because God has already said, Jesus has already said, God is concerned about you. So therefore, pray what is worrying you. And do that thing that none of us really do. Leave it to God. Because Jesus just said, if you worry about life, and you're thinking, I'm going to try to expand my life a little longer, you can't do it. As a matter of fact, science tells us the more we worry, it's probably going to shorten our life. Because if you can't change it, what's the point of worrying? Like I said, worrying doesn't work. Although we keep trying it. But if God so clothed the grass of the... I'm sorry, 27. Consider the lilies. My father loved lilies. Every time I read this passage, I think of the lilies that he loved. And my mind goes there. They're beautifully white, green stalks, the golden center. So consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. Now, lilies are not the most expensive flower in the florist. Not everybody, I know my, my wife likes um, Stargazers, some people call them tiger lilies or whatever, but, but they're, and they're a little more expensive. But the typical lily, that's why they, in the old cartoons, when you saw a, um, a, a coffin, there'd be a single lily on top of it. But it was a beautiful flower. And God's saying, Solomon, who was wealthy beyond belief, couldn't dress himself better than a lily. So if God takes care of the lily who's there and then fades away. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? You men of little faith. You see, we get so wrapped up into the here and now that we forget to let God do God. And so we have not no faith, but not enough faith. And it's always striking 
because it's all men of little faith. And yet Jesus said, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell this mountain to be moved and it'll be moved. So that tells you how little the faith really is. And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. It's not uncommon to man to worry about food, shelter, possessions, and all that. God's saying, everybody has that. So if God notices every hair on your head, and you're more valuable than the birds, and you're more valuable than the grass and the flowers, and he's saying, God knows. He's aware. God knows you need these things. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Jesus is saying, change your motivation. Change your direction. Change your attitude. Instead of pursuing the temporal, which God already knows you need, seek his kingdom. The other day, I listened to briefly a, a, a seminary professor who was speaking before a uh, chapel at his seminary. And um, he made a comment that I thought was very interesting. He goes, many men and women come to seminary wanting to know what God's will is for their lives. It was always, what does, what's God's will for me? And we frequently will ask, well, what is God's will for me? And his statement was, just drop off the for me. What is God's will? Do that. Seek the kingdom of God, which is God's will. Not for you. That's his will. Seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. So by seeking God's kingdom, it's not a hide and seek. It's not, well, I wonder if I'll find it. Once you seek God's kingdom, he will gladly give it to you. Notice it's not begrudgingly. It's not with indifference. It's gladly give it to you. Verse 33, sell your possessions and give to charity. Give to those who are going to give. Make yourselves money else, which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where there's no thief comes near nor not destroys. For where your treasure is, then your heart will be also. Jesus makes a statement that really lies at the crux of it. There was a young man who was rich who came to Jesus, and we saw this previously. And he wanted to know what he needed to do to inherit the kingdom. And Jesus said, well, what does the law say? And he talks about loving the Lord and, and uh, loving your neighbor. And he and Jesus says, well, one thing basically you still lack. Give what you have and follow me. 
And the person went away sorrowfully. He asked the question, what do I need to do to get eternal life? When given the answer, his possessions owned him rather than him owning his possessions. And so Jesus says, you want to know about it. Where is your heart? Is your heart in heaven? Because that's where your treasures are. Or is your heart here on earth in the pursuit of more possessions? Now, as I said, I have never seen a U-Haul trailer behind a hearse. But I do know that there are many, many very, very rich people in heaven. Because the scripture says, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. So my advice to me and my advice to you is send it on ahead. To look on it as to tell you where your heart is. And my prayer for me and my prayer for you is your heart is there in heaven. And all God's people said,